we did a lot of background checks on, on our investors. Mm. So we made sure we talked with uh, other portfolio companies and, and, and we made sure we spent time with them to ensure once the money's in, what happens with all these promises, mm. right? Are, are they actually delivered and, and do they materialize? And, and we had some investors, I'm not gonna name names, but that, that process didn't, like that due diligence, we were, we mm. were gonna let them in and that due diligence was the key trigger to, to really? having them. Uh, welcome to the third uh, episode of The Funded. Um, in this episode, we have Martin from uh, Mountain Protocol, who has recently raised the round, and he's here to tell us about his, uh, his process. So, Martin, uh, welcome. Thanks for your time and thanks for uh, joining us here. Uh, let's start with a quick intro of uh, Mountain Protocol and the company and what, what, what you do. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Mountain Protocol is a uh, stablecoin, is a dollar-based stablecoin. And it's the first nationally regulated stablecoin that is yield bearing and fully permissionless. What that means is you get the experience that you have with a USDC, USDT that you can transfer integrating DeFi very easily. You get uh, access to a risk-free rate or, or very similar to the risk-free rate, uh, which uh, the US treasury is paying on T-bills today. So you don't have the opportunity cost of actually being in DeFi. And third, you get all the all the comfort and, and, and safeguards of being a highly regulated uh, entity. So uh, bankruptcy, remoteness, checks and balances, uh, all of the things that come with being regulated by a regulator that also regulates banks and insurance companies. So essentially very, very similar regulation to what you would see uh, in a bank. Awesome. So basically um, the, the writing really the hot topics of real world assets, yield bearing, all of that kind of stuff. So it's a it's a it's a it's a perfect timing, um. Cool. And what is the um the round that you just raised? Can you tell us a little bit about whatever you can share? Obviously, uh, you know, if you can share amount, uh, who were the investors? What was the actual instrument? Was it equity? Did it have anything to do with tokens? Uh, whatever you can share about the round. Perfect. So, uh, the round we cannot disclose the amounts for regulatory reasons, but essentially a seed round, a crypt, very traditional crypto seed round. The investors it was led by Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures. Uh, as, as a lead partner with the participation of uh, Coinbase Ventures, New Form Capital, Daedalus Angels, so you guys, uh, uh, Alex from Nansen, uh, Amin Soleimani from uh, Rai and Reflexor, um, the guys at OpenSeppling, so a bunch of very kind of well-known names in, in, in crypto. And the instrument that we decided to go with was pure equity. Uh, we didn't uh, even sign token warrants with our investors. We feel very strongly that for assets that touch the real world, having a token is very dangerous. And that made our process very complex in crypto. So I think we're going to spend a lot more, a lot more time talking about that specifically. Yeah, I would love to hear, I would love to hear kind of the process and, uh, and, you know, ultimately how you decided on the instrument, I understand, but tell us about the process. You know, we obviously know that crypto investors like early liquidity and all of the kind of stuff. So, you know, tell us how that, uh, how that all went down. Awesome. So prepping for this podcast, I, I went through my CRM. I talked to 105 funds. So 105, wow. that, that's, a, that's a lot of conversations. And I would say there was a very clear split between funds that would only do token and were interested in, in token and how the token is going to trade and so on. And funds that are focused, I would say, on equity, but also I would go and say the long-term viability of the business, right? So instead of um, going back to the token, 
something that can look cool. You can issue a token and get liquidity in a year or two, which I would understand why a VC would be focused on that uh, if there are no limitations, but focus there versus uh, um, VCs that are focused on this is crypto, but it could be SaaS. It could be any type of business. We have to look at the economics of the business, the size of the market, the value capture, and kind of going for the long term. For us, um, out of those 105 conversations, I would say over half were token conversations. After the first call, those were very easy to cut off, right? At the beginning, it was coming from their side. I didn't understand the dynamic. Then at the, at the end, I was like, yeah, we don't do token warrants. And many people like, just declined the invite before having the first invite. <laughs> really? So, they even didn't want to, they didn't even want to have a conversation, an initial exactly. conversation. Wow. It, it's insane. So it's insane how the economics of tokens, if you think about it, makes making money on VC on crypto so easy, but at the same time, so uncorrelated to actual value. Add. And I think yeah. that, that is... I think that is a, a, a lot of liability for our space because this token, someone is buying that token and writing it all the way down, right? So for the VC and the investors to make money, someone needs to buy it here and write it all the way to zero because in the end, the project doesn't make sense. If not, uh, you would invest in the equity anyways. So, and that th those people kind of like writing it down are going to, of course, not be happy and they're going to go and go to the regulators and say, hey, crypto needs to be regulated. This is like a whatever. <laughs> I think it's very dangerous for the space to have that type of dynamic. How do you solve it? I don't know. Um, but but it, it was it was very, very clear. So many funds just focus on getting a token, maximizing token warrant, minimizing kind of like time to time to get there. For us, we ended up saying no token warrant as a way to like weed out those actors. So if you were mm -hmm. if you were only in because you were like if you were not willing to go in without a token warrant, it means probably you don't see the long-term equity play. It's probably best not to, not to have that person in the cap table. So that, that was, a, that was a, a big kind of like segregation in terms of the kind of like a, 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 a fork in the road in terms of, of investors. From there on the, on the equity investors, we tried to kind of like combine a split between more institutional TradFi or kind of like well-known brands with uh, more more DeFi native uh, kind of like more in the kind of crypto OG space. In particular, our background, so my background is banking, so I'm not a, a crypto yeah. OG. My background is more a lot more on TradFi. So if you think a stable coin, you have assets and liabilities. It look, very much looks like a bank. So I'm very strong on that side. My co-founder is very strong on CFI, but the DeFi side was the part that we were not very strong. So we made very a very conscious effort of making sure we were bringing um, that expertise uh, into, into the cap table, which has uh, has been very very helpful thus far. So um, yeah, that, that was a, a little bit of the summary. Yeah, if we, I, I'm 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 very curious um, 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 to explore a little bit more on the token side of things. Did you have funds that took the first conversations, but then they tried to push you down the token direction, knowing that initially you you didn't want to do a token? Did they? Did you have funds that said, "Oh, we'll come in, we'll lead if if you do have a token or or whatever"? Like, did you have those sort of weird conversations? The, the the conversation was there. So there was a lot of push on like, but why not a token, right? Like uh, there, there's obvious pros for a token, right? You can easily bootstrap demand uh, and th there are advantages of having a token if the project is the right project. In our case, if you have a token, large banks will not want to work with you. And if mm. the large banks don't want to work with us, it means the USDM reserve is not safe. So essentially yeah. having a token destroys value for the company. Yeah. 
that's why Circle doesn't have a token or Tether or yeah. uh, all the all these kind of like centralized issuers, they don't have one. And there was a lot of push, but like, have you thought about it? Is it real? Um, mm -hmm. to, to try to get the token in, there were several funds that were, yeah, we're interested, but if we have a token warrant, so trying to kind of put that in at, at the end. Um, fortunately, our round was, was very oversubscribed, so we didn't have to mm -hmm. kind of like, um, break the arm and kind of like getting, giving into the token. But I can imagine um, if it was not the case, yeah, it would have probably been a, a different situation because it's like, do you do the project at all with the token mm -hmm. or do you like kill the project? It, it, I, it, it, I, it is hard, yeah. No, I I remember our our early conversations with you uh, when we were sort of when we met you first when we were still considering the investment and you were very clear on the on the on the on why not to have a token and it made perfect sense because as we were talking to you it was very clear to me that you need to look as blue chip and as away from sort of crypto as possible because you want you know fidelity as your custody or whatever big provider big banks and and stuff like that and I kind of agree that um, you know a token doesn't make sense I suppose you know just kind of. To, to turn it around a little bit, a warrant doesn't make you have to have a token. I think with some players we've seen, with some VCs, with some investors, we've seen that they're a little bit concerned mostly around if they don't get a warrant now and for whatever reason the company decides to do a token later with the later stage investors or whatever, if you don't have the warrant, you may not be exposed to the token. And then all of a sudden there's a misalignment because different people are holding different assets uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the company. And there's always this conflict of where should value go into and that kind of stuff. So, you know, in some ways, asking for a warrant is not a necessarily a bad thing because you want to you want to dump, but it's just you want to protect yourself as, a, as, as an investor in case something happens. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen this week kind of like the, the, the it's been a hot topic on, on, on Twitter around like the equity versus token with a Uniswap mm. case. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's that's definitely a thing. However, um, having a having a token warrant leaves the door kind of like slightly open that mm -hmm. that is going to happen mm -hmm. and if you think about the incentives on on the token uh issuance right so you have the investors who are not directors of the company in general mm -hmm. get getting a token that they can then uh push into retail and kind of like exit very early on and then you have the company founders or independent directors, right? So, but the directors of the company who actually decided on issuing the token, who have all the liability for issuing an unregistered security, which mm -hmm. I think like the heat is, 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 is building up on, on, on this, especially mm -hmm. if your token has some sort of, of aspect where uh, it is not completely necessary in your project, which I, I think mm -hmm. many are. So then by having the token warrant, you left the door a little bit open. The incentive of the of the VC is always let's have it because it's early liquidity. I can go back to my LPs and show a very good return. And mm -hmm. then for for the for you as the founder, um, it's a, there's a ton of downside. And unless the token really yeah. makes sense on your on your process, you left the door open for a lot of board pressure on that. And you can imagine, right? Like you you left the door open. If the project is not delivering as where it should, it's very easy to think, hey, let's let's do the token and let, and, let, yeah. and let's push this. And you end up where you, where you didn't expect to be. So I think found, founders in this space should be very clear around whether a token is obvious, doesn't make sense, or kind of makes sense. I think if it kind of makes sense, I, I would yeah. agree with you. Token warrants is not the worst. You have to think about it. Uh, but if it doesn't make sense, like I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep it in. Fair, fair. 
Cool. Okay. And how did you decide that it was the right time to raise? I mean, this was your first round, right? So this was the very first time you took on external capital. How did you decide that it was the right time to uh, to actually raise this capital? Yeah. So our our company is highly regulated, right? So uh, for us, uh, the ability to issue a token is highly connected to the ability to get a, a license. So what we what we did is internally, in terms of finding jurisdictions, the initial assessments, and so on, uh, we self-funded all. Uh, out of our own pocket and basically um, spent almost like six months trying, uh, finding the, what the best jurisdiction for us was. We ended up in Bermuda. We looked at several others. The other one we spent a lot of time was Switzerland. Um, I would guess today, if you were going to start this, Singapore, uh, the mm. UK would probably also be in the map, Hong Kong. So then once we found Bermuda, we there, there was a lot of work with the regulator back and forth in terms of what the model looks like, who are going to be the partners, how we structure this and so on. And for us, that was a lot of time, but not a lot of money, right? So there were legal fees involved, of course, but the legal fees were in the hundreds of thousands. It was not in the millions, mm -hmm. right? So it is something that you can pay for yourself. So what we decided is, what is the key trigger here that an, an investor will be comfortable in getting in? And that trigger is getting the regulatory license in, right? So what we did is mm -hmm. we're going to fundraise, but if we don't get the license, you don't have to put any money in. We'll just close after mm -hmm. we get the license. The, and that, I think, as an investor, I would be more comfortable because my job is as an investor would be underwrite the business viability, the market demand, mm -hmm. product market fit, and so on. It is very hard for an investor to underwrite what is the probability that you're going to get a regulatory license for the digital asset in Bermuda, that there's only 15, right? At the mm. time, there were 15. So it, it is there is a lot of risk that you add with the license, and you don't really need the capital as much. You need a lot of founder time, right, to, to actually get the yeah. license. So for us, that the right time was we wanted to make sure that once we got the license, we could launch quickly. So we kind of prearranged the round before, but the mm -hmm. trigger of the round was actually getting getting that license approval so we can like, start closing right after. Yeah, I think, I mean, this was this was quite different, you know, from lots of investments that we do, because effectively you remove the regulatory risk risk out of the company. I mean, you know, typically you have like regulatory risk, science risk, execution risk, market risk, whatever. You took away that piece that, that ultimately could make the company not go anywhere, because if you don't get that license, you can't pivot away from, you know, you would have to change your business entirely. So, you know, we, we found that actually pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And, and, and we found that uh, a really nice thing. Uh, to 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 do, especially when your round is already oversubscribed, and you could just close it uh, anytime, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And for and for us, yeah, we wanted to maximize the. Hey, th this is an obvious thing, and right once you remove the regulatory risk, you're 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 looking at others. So that well, that allowed us to like choose who we partnered with, right? So uh, yes, we could have closed; the money could have come in, but the best investors were kind of like very regulation sensitive, mm. um, yeah. and and for them it was this was a key trigger to actually getting in, in in the round. Yeah, makes sense. And how did you decide on the amount that you wanted to raise? I know that you're not disclosing the actual amount, but how did you think about how much money do we need today uh, and, and, and kind of end up deciding on uh, what to actually raise? Yeah, so uh, a stablecoin issuer in itself is not a very expensive business to run. Uh, Tether, they, I think Paolo is on, on podcast uh, I think they have like 60 employees or something and mm. they run an 83 billion portfolio. So that is 
that is like in the orders of magnitudes of like not the top banks in the world, like not the Chinese banks or the JP Morgan. But if you go one step down, it's in that order of magnitude. So it is mm -hmm. a massive operation, 60 people. So you don't need that much money to 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 run a stable coin. So what we kind of like our, our process was again in terms of de-risking, what is that what are we de-risking now? Uh, now that we got the license and we launched. And the the de-risking process that we have now is can we break into uh, the mindshare of, of, of crypto and mm -hmm. take a piece of our mark, the market for ourselves and kind of like, will investors look at Mountain Protocol and USDM as a risk-free asset or as close as risk-free asset as, as you can think of and actually put them in, in their stablecoin portfolio in part to where they put USDC or USDT. And if we can prove that, and the way we prove that is we can grow to I don't know, a hundred million or so on, on, on assets and kind of like be integrated into several protocols as collateral, collateral for derivatives and so on. That removes an, an additional layer of risk. And then at some point, the USDM, our, our vision is it will become as inevitable in investors' minds as Lido was mm -hmm. kind of like a couple months after, after they launched when it was obvious that Lido would take a huge chunk, chunk of the market. And today, we're, like I think everyone agrees, um, so we want to get to the point where, yeah, mountain protocol is obvious, right? Like, why would you hold that? Like, why would you pay your stablecoin issuer 5% instead of getting it yourself? And like the, the trade, there is no trade off, right? The risk assumption, if any, is better. Um, so when, when that becomes part of, of the consciousness, I think that that's when we can raise our next round and mm -hmm. that next round, there are a couple of things we want to do to provide even more robustness, right? So we want to. Uh, get a license, hopefully in Singapore, if the stablecoin regulation passes. So we have, kind of have regulatory redundancy uh, there. And then there's there's a couple other things that you need to do before you can scale your portfolio significantly in terms of building up more compliance and, and, and other operational functions. But yeah, the the core thesis to prove is can you get to $100 million, right? And you don't need and, that much money to do that. Yeah, and Martin, you know, your round should buy you a certain uh, amount of runway. You know, normally, I mean, today... The expectation is, you know, 24 to 30 months because obviously people are expecting an unsettled markets and stuff like that. Did you take that into consideration in your thinking? Yeah, we, we definitely went, went down that path. We said, okay, if things go kind of like an optimistic scenario, a medium and a, and a worse scenario, in, in those three cases, do we have 24 months of runway? And what would mm -hmm. be the decisions that we would make to make sure we get to those 24 months of runway? Um, what we want to make sure we did is we didn't over fundraise. So... Mm -hmm. If in 24 months you cannot prove that you're going to break in, you're probably not going to prove that in the next 10 years, right? Yeah. So you don't want to over fundraise initially, especially because the earlier fundraises are always more expensive in terms of equity. So we wanted to optimize uh, also also for, for that variable, right? Yeah, fair. Cool. And was that the, the, initially, the initial amount that you decided on? Was that the amount you ended up raising in the end? Yes. Um, we would have raised a little bit more if we could have. Uh, we mm. we went with a um, price round. The reason yeah. for bringing in the price round is we wanted to make sure there were there was equity issued as part of our license. So mm -hmm. um, the fact that we didn't go through saves and we had to go through price um, put some some restrictions. If at the I, I think at the end our, our valuation would have like. 2x or 3x like and if we would could have mm -hmm. raised at, at that valuation with lower dilution we probably would have raised a little bit more um 
but because we had to raise same terms for everyone as part of a single round that went like that whole package went through the kind of whole regulatory process to actually get approved and issue the equity to foreign investors. Um, because we had that, we 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 were gonna we raised like less than ten percent more than we than we actually uh, wanted to, and the reason mm -hmm. was more about making space for mm -hmm. investors that we want to make sure we 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 had in, as opposed to uh, like taking advantage of the fact that the deal uh, ended up being hot. It was not always hot. At the beginning, it was like definitely yeah. very cold, but at the end, it was it was a very hot deal. So here's a, yeah, and I remember kind of the, 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 the haggling at the end, you know, on the amounts and stuff like that. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's something that is uh, still in my memory. And, you know, you, you, your investors pledge certain support kind of um, into the company, you know, like even TVL into the protocol and stuff like that. Would you say that, would you feel, do you feel that they've delivered everything that was promised? Would you say that some people are still sitting on their hands a little bit? Are you happy with kind of how that's going? Yeah, so we're not gonna talk about that. Nah, no, no. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think the we made sure we we had investors do some work before the round was closed to kind of like de-risk that portion because again the trade-off we were making of allowing an investor in was um was we were leaving someone out and we left out several people that we actually wanted to to have in into mm -hmm. the round. So uh, we made sure that if there was TVL commitments, we we had that on on, on writing. Um, mm -hmm. for support, I, I think for, for Dairalu specifically, it was a lot around like connecting with DeFi. I think that was, uh, that is being delivered, uh, in an amazing way. Like the support is, is kind of like first class. So definitely, uh, great things to say there. I think other investors kind of like the larger investors, um, the support was kind of like in line with what we expected. Right. So Nick Carter, mm -hmm. for example, he shopped us around and made sure we we got a, a lot of exposure. So he he really put a lot of time. He was in Bermuda last week. Uh, we met with the premier in Bermuda to make sure that he was aware of Mountain Protocol. And like he actually he did the trip. It's like three days of his time, right? So uh, mm. a, a lot a lot of support from 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 the investors. So I would say, in general, we're we're very happy with with what we got. But I think it was because we also made sure that they knew they were getting in because of that work, right? So yeah. If you just take the cash, um, I, I see lots of, of stories where lots of promises are given and then nothing gets delivered. And then the second is we did a lot of background checks on, on our investors. Mm. So we made sure we talked with uh, other portfolio companies and, and, and we made sure we spent time with them to ensure once the money's in, what happens with all these promises, mm. right? Are, are they actually delivered and do they materialize or are they just like sweet talk and then and, and we had some investors, I'm not going to name names, but that, that process didn't like that due diligence. We were, we mm. were going to let them in and that due diligence was the key trigger to, to really? having them. We had one who committed TVL to us in writing. When we went to do the due diligence, we talked to another portfolio company. They also had TVL in writing. Mm. They closed and then that TVL got negotiated down to zero. No way. Like and, and after months of them working, they were counting on that because in the end you have to bootstrap your business, right? Like you need liquidity for a pool. There, there, there's a bunch of things that you need. This company was yeah. like, I was counting on that and that didn't come. And there were there are a lot of excuses, right? But in the end, it didn't materialize. So we're like, Are you yeah. sure you don't want to tell us who that is? <laughs> uh no, I think I think it's better uh to do to do due diligence on, on kind of like a one-to-one. -one. Of course. Um 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. Can you tell me how you went about doing the due diligence? I guess the question I'm asking is, you know, often we see investors that say, oh, you should talk to our startups. Here's two startups from our portfolio you should talk about. And of course, they're going to give you the ones they have the best relationship with. So how did you go about it? So in gen- what you say is exactly that, right? And if you think about the, the, they're probably helping those guys a lot. The question is, if you start and you're not in th- those two and you're a part of the other eight, right, that are, that are not going that direction, are mm. you going to get any help? Um, basically, are you going to get what you were promised, right, uh, in, in, in the fundraise? So you, you, you want to, like get those two, probably talk to one, but you also mm. want to talk with, with some of the others. So you need to go into the portfolio and see the companies that you, you have not heard of, right? Yeah. That are not killing it. Go talk yeah. to them and see, see what they say. And they probably also have stories from other perf- companies in the portfolio, right? So it, it is normal that you will be connected to the portfolio. So that kind of like independent um, outreach is, is going to be the one that really gives you the signal. Of, of, of what yeah. happens, especially if you don't get off the ground with like an amazing, uh, like you're not part of those two out of out of 10 because you have some sort of flywheel to get started, right? So yeah. um, those are the ones where the results take a little bit longer to materialize and where the kind of like moral commitment to whatever what was promised is, is even more important. So um yeah, sure. I think I think that's 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 the way you do it. And people are super open, especially especially like if they're extra open, it's either it was an amazing experience or it was a very yeah. bad one. So those are the ones that you wanna you wanna be connected with. The interesting one is when you uh, when you ping someone and you say, Hey, I wanna do a little bit of due diligence on this fund, and they go, Yeah, no problem, but can we do it on the phone? <laughs> it's like, okay, I know what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and you also have to go a past fund. And talk hopefully talk about partner right like um if like angels tend to be very like easier to to actually do diligence on for funds especially large ones the partner also matters a lot right so yeah. in, in our case castle island they have four partners but um our diligence was mostly focused on nick as the partner who's going to be dedicated in our on our deal so um i would say for or for for those larger funds, it's 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 important to also kind of like double click and see, okay, what about the partner? How much weight does this does this partner carry? Can can he or she deliver on, on the promises, right? Makes a lot of sense. Um Martin, so you spoke to 105 funds. I mean, that's a lot of funds. How did you go about deciding? Well, actually, first of all, deciding on who to speak to, and then how did you actually get to speak to them? How did you reach out to them? Did you look for intros? Did you cold call them or email them or whatever? Like, what was your 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 process around that? Yeah. So at, at the beginning, um, <laughs> we started kind of talking to funds. I would say around February or March of this year, and we essentially closed like the verbal commitment of the round uh, at some point in May, right? So it was kind of like a four month process. It was. It was not the full time of the of of the business because of course the regulatory part was a priority and then we kind of we knew fundraising was going to be a little bit longer and because we knew we wanted to wait for the round we started earlier. I would say in February, although rates were pretty high, real world assets were like not hot at all, right? Mm-hmm. So it was very hard for us to get on the phone. We would talk to funds and they would like completely ignore us and say, yeah, we don't know about the the competition here about like whether you can build it. There were it, it was definitely feeling like talking with a wall. And um, we had a couple, like two or three believers early on, which connected us with a lot of funds. 
Surprisingly hmm. enough, one of those didn't invest in the end. Um, really? Wow. So there, there was a fund that connected us with, I don't know, 20 investors or so. And mm. most of our of our of our um, of the people who actually invested in the company came from introductions from that fund, but that fund didn't invest. They were <laughs> a connection from one of our angels. The fund is not a crypto specific fund, so they were mm. there was a lot of expertise that they liked. So they brought in a lot of other people to see what they thought, and they looked yeah. at the average of that. And I think they they took the thermometer a little bit earlier in the process, and it was like still yeah. cold, so they walked out. And then, like once we closed, they were like, "Oh, we wish we had got in," and so on. Uh, but that yeah. that was a funny a funny step in the process. But the, this non-expert that introduced us um, with a very strong kind of like referral from a founder on their portfolio on saying, "Okay, this team is really good. They're doing crypto. Mm -hmm. We know you're not a crypto fund." That really helped us get get a lot of exposure um, because mm -hmm. unless you get referred to, it's very very hard to actually get in front in front of of these funds. Once you become a hot deal, it, mm. it, it is like it's the opposite, right? You need to be to be filtering because even though you can spend all your time talking to 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 VCs mm. and not building anything, um, so I think I think you have to strike a balance. But it's like at the beginning when you're cold, it it is you have to grind, right? Like you have to go get those referrals, ask for introductions, and kind of follow up with those introductions and so on. And it, it is it is funny, right? Like many of those who didn't reply emails or were like, yeah, we're not interested even on, on the email initially, mm -hmm. uh, who didn't make it to the 105 are now kind of like, hey, let's connect and whatever, you know? Of so course, right. It, it, goes, it goes around. Um, and I think it makes sense, right? VCs see hundreds of decks every week. So they also have to prioritize. So when you, if you put yourself on their shoes, how do you make <laughs> it obvious for them to spend half an hour with you to get to know the company? And the one tried and tested thing is referrals, which is, Unfortunately, yeah. a hard thing to scale because you need to have those people. So getting your first angels in is is, is mm. critical uh, for, for that. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the fund that did a lot of introductions. You know, we often do introductions when we see something that we actually like, especially the team. We like the idea. We may not have enough conviction. We may end up not investing in the end. But if we think that the team is uh, is strong, if we think that they're they're doing the right thing, we'll still do introductions for them. We'll be very clear when we're doing an introduction that either we've uh, we've um, we're still making a decision or we've already passed. And sometimes the pass maybe is too late stage for us. You know, we as a as a as a as an angel collective, we we like to do the pre seeds and the seed deals. Sometimes we see a Series A, we love the team, we love what they're doing, but actually. You know, uh, uh, the math doesn't doesn't work out. We'll still do a lot of interest to them if it's in a space where we just don't understand it well enough. But the team is strong; it comes across. So, 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 so I think that's quite normal. You know that um, that, that 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 you get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, man, 105 funds. That's a, a lot of conversations. Or oh, oh, first calls, right? 105. That doesn't mean emails and and yeah. so on. That the, the top of funnel was bigger, but kind of like 105 first half an hour calls. So, and do you uh, feel? Do you feel that when you got the lead is when all of a sudden things heated up, right? So I think it was, so Nick Carter has a lot of, of, of weight on stable coins, right? Like he yeah. was an early Luna disbeliever or detractor. And um, he's been writing about stable coins for a while. So he has a, like when Nick Carter talks about stable coins that carries a lot of weight. So that was a key turning point in terms mm -hmm. of the of the round. And then when the introduction is, 
hey, like from Nick sending an email to you, hey, I'm going to be leading this round. Do you want to participate? Mm. The round is going to happen, right? Yeah. So the question is, do you want to get in or not? I, it's yeah. very different from before you have a lead. Hey, do you want to see this deal? There is no lead. Um, mm. So we, we can talk about the lead in, in, in a second. Like that's the question we, you always get. Uh, let's, let's get to that. But I think Nick was, was, a, was a big change for us. The yeah. the second uh, big change was Coinbase. So yeah. Coinbase in April got their license in Bermuda too. So yeah. Coinbase, as, as a large institution, they of course did a lot of research on our on our business, mm. on the legal side of our business. They also did a lot of research in Bermuda because they also decided as Bermuda for their offshore uh, operations. So that also yeah. lended a lot of 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 um, credibility to the. To the to the business, so kind of like I think those were the two big uh, big points where where the round kind of like really really started to to heat up. Nick from stablecoin expertise perspective from the business, and then kind of Coinbase yeah. from more of like a regulatory legal clarity perspective. And were you worried about? I mean, Coinbase obviously has a close relationship with Circle to the point where they own some of Circle um, as a company. Were you worried about that relationship? Um, and was 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 there were there conversations that you had to discuss how they manage the two things? We were very transparent about that, like during our first call, like um, they, I think they do a good job of separating the ventures team from the rest of the business team. And um, we're like, they were like, yeah, we, we know, we know we have circle. We, we love working with circle, uh, but they were like, whatever grows the ecosystem is where we invest because in mm -hmm. the end, if the ecosystem grows, uh, Coinbase grows. And then I think that the, the kind of details were more around um, information rights mm -hmm. and how do you make sure that information right Coinbase is a, is a multinational company right they have operations in different countries they have IP agreements and so on so information rights can move around we wanted to make sure that those information rights moving around didn't generate a conflict of interest uh falling mm -hmm. into into circle or so on um so that was the part that we had to negotiate a little bit it was like I, I think they wanted to do the deal we wanted to do the deal so it was uh it was kind of straightforward but that was the only part where the kind of Coinbase circle uh, thing uh, came up. On the flip side, they know the, the business really well, right? So mm -hmm. they, by being so close to circle, they have, uh, I think this is public, they have um, ref share agreements with circle. So mm -hmm. they, they really know how, how that works. Um, and that really helped us uh, because they, they knew exactly what they were talking about. Amazing. Um, yeah. Awesome. And can you tell me about the lead then? Um, what were the negotiations like? Was it a long negotiating process? Was it like the first term sheet was was pretty much spot on and you took it? Like how was how did that go? So before we get to how to to the lead being selected, the yeah. on the on the previous conversations, on the previous intros, we got a lot of replies back on like who is the lead? Yeah. When is it closing? Yeah. So um going back to the how do you make sure you 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 get the run done that was a part where you need to find your first believer on finding that yeah. lead and i think yeah. most vcs i think do have a, a hard time prioritizing spending time with a with a business and kind of like having conviction and leading and then those mm. same vcs because they don't they don't have that they ask who the lead is mm. you say we don't have a lead yet and then they're out of the round because they got in too late so mm -hmm. I think that that's a that's an interesting uh, dynamic that that plays out. They you, you were connected early on. They will of course once the lead is there, they'll, they'll of course want to be part of the round. The question mm -hmm. is like how how do you and they and they want the maximum allocation, right? So yeah. once the lead is there, 
So uh, being cognizant of that and, and not falling for emotional kind of place of like, yeah, we talked very early on. We wanted to support you. We said yes, if there was a lead and so on. Mm -hmm. um, be conscious that if they didn't say yes early on, that is on them, right? They didn't have mm -hmm. the conviction. Yeah. So be comfortable yeah. in saying that's fine. We, we're we we're, we're going to have to give you instead of a million allocation, we'll give you half a million. That's as much as yeah. we can give you, right? So so that that's on the lead. Specifically on, on, on our lead, we had a, a lunch that was supposed to be an hour and we spent three hours with Nick talking about mm -hmm. the, this business. Um, we got very deep into like details of how you structure it, the, um, the mm -hmm. path forward, the go-to-market. And, and it was very clear that we were both very excited about the business. So I think after that kind of like first conversation was clear we were going to do something together uh, if terms matched. Mm -hmm. In terms of the of the terms, we had an idea of what we wanted. So we floated that idea very early on, like in, in that lunch. And then basically um, it, was, it was very easy because the expectations were aligned, right? Uh, in terms of like right. what we wanted, what the business was and so on. So the negotiation of the term sheet was almost non-existent. It was it was more really? around some minor terms on, on the on the on the term sheet, more than like the major of like how much you're raising, what the valuation is, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, we in in our case because we are a regas exempted uh, company, there was a lot of negotiation around making sure we build the business correctly, so that we mm -hmm. are regas exempted. So they wanted to have a board seat, but because they're in the US, we cannot give them a board seat. So we selected an independent board member together. So there were negotiations around that, but mm -hmm. it was not about are we doing the deal or not? It's like, how do we structure it correctly so that we both get, get what we want? Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, in, in the end, it was once the business was clear and the terms were kind of aligned at, at a high level, um, the term sheet was very, very easy to, and straightforward to kind of accept. And then everyone got it in at the same terms. So there was no, uh, awesome. because it was, it's a price round. It was very, very straightforward in that sense. And you said that you had lunch with Nick. Did you fly over to see him? Did he fly over to see you? And how did that come about? Was it agreed that he's going to lead? Was it a part of the due diligence that you, you got together? Because obviously you live in different countries. Um, how did it come about? Yeah, so um, we were both in the same city. Um, so it was kind of like I talked with the associate in the team. And he's like, oh, Nick is going to be here. You, sh you, sh you guys should get together. And... Uh, it was like I I, I drove uh, nearby so we could have yeah. lunch near 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 where he was, and then his meetings happened to be canceled right after uh, we started. Yeah. So that's how, that's how we we had enough time to actually go go deep in the business, but it was more of a of a ch more chance than design. Mm -hmm. If I were to yeah. do it again, if like if you have a very high conviction, right, I wouldn't be flying around meeting with investors if you if you don't know uh what they're focused on but if you have an investor that is the leader of like the key opinion maker in the space that you're building mm -hmm. it might be worth going and meeting in person i think zoom is great but it's very hard to spend three hours in zoom talking about a, a business model right mm -hmm. like there's something about being in person that yeah. that is that is very very hard to replace at, at least for me and i think that was very important actually getting him through the through the finish line especially because it's not only about the business it's about do you think the founders and the founding team can actually build it and execute it and grow it, right? Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of that character is very hard to get in a thirty-minute Zoom call. I guess I wanted to quickly touch upon the the lead conversation. You know, we often um, we often commit to to rounds, but subject to leads. Um, and 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 the reason the reason for us is that 
there's a lot of shitty funds in the space, right? In the crypto space, there's a lot of really shitty funds. And, you know, as much as we like the startup, a lead on the round has a certain influence over the company, the direction, the, the founders, actions, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, for us, we don't want to invest behind the shitty lead, right? Because we've seen amazing companies get pushed into being in bad places by bad advice from their lead. And we know a lot of the shitty funds. Uh, and so for us, it's not about like, oh, we want like some tier one fund that we want to form behind or whatever. We just want to make sure it's not a fund that we've seen act badly before. And even in some cases, you know, like a lot of our companies actually ask us whether we should, they should take this, this lead or this lead or this lead. And we, we, we often try to be, or actually always try to be as, as um, um, kind of informative as possible. And say, you know, like in our opinion, this is the right fund for these reasons. This is why we don't think these are the right, uh, the, the 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 right funds and stuff like that. So, you know, I I I could I, I guess I'm explaining from our perspective why we would actually, you know, want to know who the lead is, um, uh, rather than uh, rather than kind of be able to commit without uh, without that. But we we pretty much always commit and say, okay, this is the amount we would like, but we would not we would like to know, you know, exactly who the, who the lead is to make sure that they fit with our kind of. Um, and, and I think that's the right thing because once you, you put a number in the ground and you said, yes, you are showing that you have early conviction and it's yeah. way harder to say, we're going to like not give you space after you show that early conviction. Mm. What what I'm saying is more around folks that are, who's the lead and what, mm. what, what are the terms and, and like everything before they even have the first meeting. So they are yeah. focused. They are more looking at signal on the lead before they even take yeah. the call. And they're not willing to commit or like in your case, I would say it's a commit with condition, but it's still a commit, yeah. right? Like you, you put a number uh, in, yeah. in, in there. There's of course conditions, but in general, right? Like uh, unless there's something weird that's going to go mm. through. What yeah. I'm referring to is fo folks that will talk and will be kind of like in the ether until mm. a fund commits. Yeah, yeah. And that's when they want to jump in and kind of commit. And so, they want to formal behind someone, right? They don't, it can be just any fund committing. It has to be like, somebody they want to form behind <laughs> exactly exactly so i think i think it's it's that second uh kind of like formal driven fund that yeah. um that that I, I don't know what the expertise in i, I think it, it would be good if you could get into someone that learns how to manage that but how do you get through uh because th there are several good funds that that did this that we would have had in the cap table had mm. they committed earlier so it's not a there, there are a bunch of shitty ones, but there are also some good ones. So I, I think it, there's, there is a dynamic where they need to prioritize the time. They're getting so much deal flow. How do you actually drive that without having uh, this kind of like very weak, low opinionated uh, signal until you yeah. have a, a lead and it's more about the lead than the business, right? So I, I, yeah. I think that's an interesting topic to explore if you have an expert. I'm definitely not one. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, selecting selecting the lead you know, you're pretty much, you know, tying uh, your relationship with them for quite a long time, at least until your next, your next round where, you know, there's a new lead and kind of, you know, the, the company gets passed on to the next investor, which is more of a growth investor rather than a startup investor and, 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 and things like that. But I mean, I think for you guys, obviously the main thing is alignment on uh, vision and, 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 and how to do things and, uh, you know, not having any sort of surprises uh, down the, down the line. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and in in our case, it was e even more so, right? Like, <clears throat> stable coins are a business where you cannot lose one dollar, right? Like, 
Mm. Uh, you put your money in stables because you don't want to be exposed to any yeah. type of volatility. So you want to be always, if there is some risk, you want to mm. move slower and ensure, ensure that that risk goes to zero as opposed to taking yeah. any risk. So who you have in the cap table and what sort of pressure um, that, that's going to get you and how how much exposure to speed, right? Like you, you want to make sure that you're very aligned on that. Um, you cannot move fast and break things, especially mm. in, in this type of business. There are others where you can move fast and break things, right? If you're not t- touching people's money and you're yeah. doing, I don't know, analytics or so on for yeah. marketing, right? If, if that breaks for one day, yeah, you lost some some CAC, but it's not the end of the world. Mm. We're, we're on the total opposite side of the spectrum, right? So uh, making sure you bring people that understand that and, and are kind of like very conscious about that is, is critical. For sure. So what was the, the legal process like? I mean, what I'm what I'm wondering is, you know, if you can kind of give us the high level, they send you a term sheet, you sign the term sheet, then did you create the long docs? Did they create the long docs? Um, yeah, our, our process is a little bit more complex because we're a regulated financial institution. So if you think about like, let's say you have a bank in London and you're issuing shares and selling those shares to offshore investors, Um, you can imagine that the regulator is going to be very much on top of that process to make sure who is owning my financial institutions, right? Mm. So with with that in mind, I would say our process was a lot more complex than the typical um, Mm. crypto process because of that regulatory angle that that we have. In in summary, we we had the term sheet. The term sheet was led by by the lead investor and we made it very clear. No one else can negotiate, right? Like, it, you take those terms or you're out, right? Because if not, you end up like this never closes. So from the term sheet, we ended up engaging our U.S. counsel, the lead investors U.S. counsel, and then our Bermuda counsel and the U- and the lead investors Bermuda legal counsel, wow. plus interfacing with several regulatory agencies on the Bermuda side. So it was quite a complex process in terms of actually yeah. getting that closed. And... Um, because we we had so many stakeholders and we couldn't get everyone on the phone. Like if I were to do it again, I would get everyone on the phone every three days to actually do the work there Mm. half an hour because everything was over email. There were lots of errors. Like our cap table was Mm. calculated wrong the first time (laughs) due to a small misunderstanding. Like the director was put in the wrong company, like the independent director. There were a bunch of, of, of errors that you have to be very on top of the process by consume a lot of time. And then you have to go back and forth um, in actually getting that close. Again, I think very highly related to us being a regulated company more than mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, okay. So that's, uh, I, I was just smiling when you were saying, because I was just calculating how much money lawyers made on this whole deal. <laughs> so we spent, I would say almost 10% of our round, uh, like 7% of the round in, in closing. It, it was insane. Um, Jesus, it, it was it was a lot of money. Yeah, if you think about wow. spending that money on on anything else, um, yeah. So so for us, we we get asked a lot about like, can you do an extension? Can we get in? And I think about like yeah. how hard it was to close, and we're like, yeah, no, we'll do everything together on the next one, right? There's no, yeah, uh, there the it, it was it was such a, a such a friction uh, driving process, and I think right like, uh, Nick was. I don't know if I'm going to do offshore deals again, right? Um, he mm. was involved in our deal and then he had another deal in Europe uh, at the same time. And the deals, the friction of doing the deal is so complex mm. that you you have to put your bar a little bit higher in terms of yeah. what I think the return of this company is going to be. 
but but as a fund, you need to be cognizant that you are going to be facing this kind of longer closing cycle and kind of like higher legal fees, more complexity in actually getting the deal done. Like we were getting calls from the CFO of Casa Islands. Like, is this going to happen or not? Like, right. Uh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm working 24/7 to get this to happen. But yes, it's it's hurting cats and hurt. Like, you have a like if yeah. you think two two four and then all of the legal agencies agencies. So you have like seven stakeholders that you need to align. Mm. It, it get it starts to get complex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the regulatory side makes everything much more complicated, right? I mean, when you when you throw that into into a round that already has a bunch of moving parts, and then you throw regulators in, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, what what would you say were the most challenging parts of the round? Where did you kind of uh, think, oh fuck, this 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 really sucks, and uh, I I am not I'm not up to dealing with it. Uh, I think that the first part was very uh, um, uphill. Like it was an uphill mm-hmm. battle, right? Where we had the like the idea didn't change since last year when we started working on it. Um, mm-hmm. We knew because we had met the regulator that there were very good chances that we would get the license. But most other people thought the odds of us getting that license was very close to zero because so mm-hmm. many people had attempted to do this in other places and they had all failed. And I think there was a lot of uh, PTSD in terms of funding companies to spend on legal fees and not getting mm-hmm. their license that we were kind of like against a, a, very, a very strong current uh, in terms of actually uh, getting, getting excitement about the product. And at, the, at that point, right, when we started fundraising, the consensus was instead of doing a stable coin that's regulated and so on, you just find a way to put DeFi on top and have the permissionless way be uh, a kind of like a DeFi mulet. And then do everything kind of like permissioned and just feed that DeFi protocol, right? And there, there are several people doing that. I, I don't think that gives enough security to investors. And I think that numbers are kind of showing that. But at that time, mm-hmm. that was the consensus, right? Like that's that's how you build the, this product. Um, so that that was a very uphill battle. Um, once again, once the lead was in, and a critical thing that I didn't say, I connected the lead to our lawyer who was leading right. the the case in. Uh, in Bermuda so that he could get kind of due diligence of like, what are the probabilities that we do this? Because you know, this saying, right? How do you know a founder is lying? And it's like, because he's talking. Um, <laughs> so you want to, you want to make sure that, that you allow your VC to do diligence of course uh, on, yeah. on you. Right. And especially on, on the key aspects of the business. So I was like, yeah, go, go talk directly to our, to our lawyer. Our lawyer cannot lie to you. Right. Uh, because they, they can't. So get an independent perspective of what you think the odds are of getting this. And that was the key point of research. It was like a 15 minute call. Uh, I don't know, in legal fees, that's, that's nothing. And it gave a lot of comfort on like actually spending the time. They didn't spend the money because that was after we got the license, but time is money. So for them spending the time of yeah. actually getting the run together, that was, that was a key thing to getting them across the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um- Martin, what would you do differently if you were to go back in time and redo this whole process? If I were to start again, right? Like when we started with this business August last year, I would have started with um, a different, like I would I would have launched a permissioned un- like unregulated product, like mm-hmm. many many have done. Start building traction with that. Of course, it's not the end product. Uh, but you can start building building traction and then kind of like work 
on the side to actually getting regulated. Going regulated first is very, very hard, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we are late to market because of that, right? Like when when we're going and talking with, with uh, our clients, most of our clients have already spoken to a number of our of alternatives, uh, mm. which don't have the permissionless component. They are not regulated, uh, but in general, most people are like, "Oh, I'm I'm already getting the five percent. The rest doesn't really matter." The risk assessment, most people don't don't really know how to how to do it, so they they perceive the risk to be very similar. And then until you're integrated in DeFi, the permissionless doesn't really matter that much either. So we are kind of like fighting against that to actually build that. Um, so if I were to do it again, I would start that way. That is interesting. Isn't... That's very interesting. Yeah, because the, the question we get a lot is, and, and this is getting back to the business, but I think it's related to fundraise anyway. And people are like, okay, the you're regulated, that makes sense. You invest in short-term deals, that makes sense. You're audited by Open Seventies and your C20, right? All of that makes sense. What's your TVL? Right. And you need those early kind of like 10 million, 20 million uh in, mm. in clients to actually break the I'm not 50% of the TVL, right? Because yeah. uh, yesterday we were talking to a, to a to an acquaintance of yours and he was like, okay, I, I want to put X. And then he realized that was a, a double digit percentage of TVL. And he was like, mm, mm. I'm nervous going right in. I'm, I'm going to tiptoe with a little bit less. It is totally, I think, emotional, but I think there is a rational component of like, if, if other people have not gotten in, why am I going to get in? And I think, the work we're doing is making sure we bring sophisticated players in that actually do the risk assessment. We announced a partnership with Wintermute recently, and, and but we're, we're we're fighting with the fact that we're a little bit late to the party. So again, to what we would do again uh, differently, we would launch a uh, kind of like unregulated but permissioned product, so kind of like accredited mm -hmm. investor only, and then start doing the regulatory side on the uh, work on the side. Once you have some traction on that and you can show that you have a path towards being permissionless, I think that fundraise would have been easier. And then you are not catching up on like the share of mind uh, so mm -hmm. late to the party, right? Like we started in August, some of our competitors launched in February this year and like we launched uh, a, a month ago. So it we could have been in market 12 months earlier if you, if, if you right. think about it. And in, yeah. in that, like in the end, Fundraising is about uh, like product market fit. Like that's the biggest mm. thing, right? E even having a license is not the key thing that drives value. It's about can you yeah. drive customer demand? So if I were to change anything, it would be launching earlier with a subpar version of the product, knowing that you can bring it to uh, to where you actually want to be, the vision to be. Again, there are questions that come with that. Like would investors have thought that that is possible, right? Like there's a lot of things, right? Like the grass, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But if I were to do it differently, I would launch earlier, uh, with, and yeah. specifically with with that type of product. So the MVP way, basically, the 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 MVP on the regulatory side, the MVP on the product side, basically be in market, uh, and then and then kind of figure out the yes. yeah, that makes uh, that makes sense. Which which again, right? Like back in 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 August, I was like, why would people buy a permission product, right? So I had my doubts whether this product would even work. There was clearly demand for them, right? Mm -hmm. Today, there's 300 million worth of of of, of that demand. Mm -hmm. um, I, I going back with information I had, I don't know if I would have done it, right? Even if you tell me the MVP, I would have said this MVP is not useful. So I don't mm -hmm. know, but like today, with information I have today, I would definitely would have would have would have done that.
Yeah, makes sense. Um, listen, um, one last question from me. You've been incredibly, uh, incredibly generous with your time. Um, the last question really is, uh, what would be your advice to people that are considering their funding round uh, currently? I would say find, and, and this, is, this is hard because it doesn't affect to anyone, but find those early angels that are going to support you. Those early angels that have convinced, uh, like conviction on, on the team and mostly on the team, but also on the product uh, that can help you get in front of, of, of those VCs that, that you want to get in front of. Mm. And then B, don't be shy of asking for introductions, right? Like most of our, of our uh, conversations happen through VCs, like angels introduced to a VC, and then this VC introduces us to a bunch. So ask yeah. those VCs for, for more introductions. Usually they're very happy to share deal flow. Um, yeah. So deal flow is an ass, is the asset. So if, if you, you ask them, they'll, they'll probably share. And uh, yeah, that, that's how you get in front of, in front of like uh, even, even more people. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. Well, Martin, it's been uh, a lot of fun doing this with you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and yeah, looking forward to uh, getting it published and uh, getting it in front of the audience.